Father, thank you again for this time when we can think about you. And uh, may our understanding of the book of Hebrews, which brings us back to the sacrificial system and the sanctuary, uh, may this be relevant to us today and bring us closer to you. Amen. You know what? I think we have uh, sometimes the wrong uh, mindset when we think about books like this. You look at the book of Hebrews and you think, my goodness, it's going to take, what, how many weeks to read through the book of Hebrews? Well, um, notice here Paul's words at the very end of the book. I beg you, my friends, to listen patiently to this message of encouragement, for this letter I have written you is not very long. And um, you know what? I would encourage you, if you've been reading the same Bible um, for years and years, um, and uh, you know you're, you get used to reading verses in a certain way, and they become very familiar, and you've underlined your Bible, um, pick up a new Bible and uh, read it. Uh, read that familiar book or verse or whatever. It's very stimulating. And uh, this week I read the book of Hebrews in uh, the Phillips translation, which is really very good. You can get this at, um, it's down at the Berean uh, bookstore. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. It's a really good translation. And we've mentioned this before, but remember back in this time, people didn't have you know a dozen Bibles in their home. You want to hear the Bible? Well, again, this was not even canonized yet. You want to hear the book of Hebrews? Well, you go to the church or synagogue, and there's the scroll, and someone stands up and reads through the whole book. And it's really helpful to just to read through a book in that way because uh, the way we usually approach Bible study is, uh, you know, we'll spend a long time on one verse and dissect it, and, and I think there's a lot of value to that. But there's also great value in just reading through a whole book um, quickly, and you really get the, the big picture. So we'll be using the Phillips translation here for a lot of uh, the verses in the Bible study today. And I really like the way he translates the opening of Hebrews 1. God, who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth in the words of the prophets, has now, at the end of the present age, given us the truth in the Son. Again, if you're looking for the clear, distilled truth about what God is like, um, we probably shouldn't be reading the book of uh, Judges to, to form that picture. Remember, in John 1, we read that no one has really seen God. Okay, but the Son has come to make him known. He is the truth, the clear manifestation of what God is like. Through the Son, God made the whole universe. And to the Son, he has ordained that all creation shall ultimately belong. This Son, radiance of the glory of God, flawless expression of the nature of God, some versions say of the character of God, himself the upholding principle of all that is, effected in person the reconciliation between God and man, and then took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's interesting, uh, There were uh, Phillips did two versions of this. The first one he chose the word uh, cleansed, and then the second version he used the word reconciliation. And other versions will use uh, washed, or purified. I really like the word reconciliation here because that is what God in human form came to do, to reconcile us back into a trusting relationship with him again. And I think this is really kind of the thesis for the whole book, which is it was God in human form that came, the perfect reflection of God's character. And what was his mission? He came to heal, cleanse, purify, reconcile, and Paul really goes into this, and he uses the sanctuary as a model to explain how God reconciles, how God heals, how God cleanses. 
Okay, and so as the book goes on, he first proves that the one who came really was God. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he brought his firstborn son into the world, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. And if we go back to Romans, we read that uh, we are not to worship anything that is created. Okay, so Jesus came, we are to worship him. He's fully divine, fully God, fully human, uh, fully worthy of our worship. Interesting though, Jesus never asked anyone, get down on your knees and worship me, even though he was God in human form. About the Son, however, God said, your kingdom, O God, will last forever and ever. Now it's interesting, the Father is saying about the Son, your kingdom, O God, will last forever and ever. You rule over your people with justice. You love what is right and hate what is wrong. That is why God, your God, has chosen you and has given you the joy of an honor far greater than he gave to your companions. He also said, you, Lord, in the beginning created the earth, and with your own hands you made the heavens. They will disappear, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothes. You will fold them up like a coat, and they will be changed like clothes, but you are always the same, and your life never ends. So Paul's trying to paint a picture here of the one who came. Okay? He's God, the Son, and the uh, book of John again, the unique one and only who is equal with God. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, if uh, God would spend nine months in the womb and his first night in a manger, that's a little lower than the angels. So that through God's grace, he should die for everyone. We see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the death he suffered. It was only right that God who creates and preserves all things should make Jesus perfect through suffering. And I think we mentioned this before. That could sound a little strange. Make him perfect? Uh, Was he not always perfect? Was there a time Jesus was imperfect? And again, the illustration I like is pick any fruit that starts out as a bud and then blossoms into a flower and then finally becomes, in this case, a mature apple. Is it perfect at every stage? Yes. Is it mature at every stage? No. Did, uh, did Jesus come out of the womb with a detailed knowledge of the plan of salvation and, and everything? No, he, he learned, he grew, he matured. Okay, and what we see in the three and a half years of the life and death of Jesus is the full ripe fruit, the full perfect reflection of who God is in character. Okay, so, but anyway, so he should make Jesus perfect through suffering in order to bring many children to share his glory. Okay, are we to become uh, bright? Again, this is reflecting we are to share in his character, his nature. For Jesus is the one who leads them to salvation. Again, in that word we uh, hear healing again. Like a salve, he purifies people from their sins and both he and those who are made pure all have the same father. This We ended our Bible study last time talking about the desire that Paul had and that God has that we reflect the character of Jesus Christ. We are to change. Again, not as a daunting command, be perfect, but as a promise. We spend time with God. We're in relationship with him. By beholding, we become changed. It's unavoidable. Okay, We work on the relationship, not on uh, working our way to heaven. 
And just one verse, we didn't mention this one in Romans, so I thought we'll just skip back and, and uh, just briefly mention this because it fits in well. Romans 12.2, do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. And that's really, this is the point I'd like to make from Hebrews. What God wants, the cleansing of the temple, what he really wants to cleanse is our mind. Okay, we'll go through that. So since all these sons and daughters have flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood to be like them. He did this so that by dying, he would destroy the one who had the power over death, that is, the devil. This great controversy theme. Again, we've got to highlight it every time we come across it and ask, what does that mean? How did he destroy the devil? The devil lives on, right? He didn't die when Jesus died on the cross. But remember, how the devil has power over us is when we believe his lies. Okay, Jesus came to refute the lies, all the charges. God is just like Jesus. When we believe that, when we enter into this trust relationship with a God who's just like Jesus, Satan is fully defeated. So, uh, Paul goes in now to describe Jesus as becoming the high priest. And what does that mean? So he says, Therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, our brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. What does that mean? Since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. And I put a a version of this here that um, maybe would open up just some ideas about what does that mean? How did Jesus take away our sins? Other translations say he became a propitiation or he atoned or a means of reconciliation. And we may read into this uh, word or these phrases many different things. I think it's important we try to understand what really happened. Propitiation may have a certain uh, connotation. Atonement or atonement may mean something different. Reconciliation. Again, what did Jesus come to do? Well, he did come to take away our sins. We've mentioned all the the healing uh, aspect. And uh, we don't have time to go into this today, but we've spent so much time in this Bible study talking about what is sin. We tend to equate sin with the outward manifestations. Adultery, murder, lying, that is sin. There we can put our finger on sin. Uh, But remember, sin is ultimately a distrustful, rebellious attitude towards God. It's a breakdown in trust. It's a breakdown in relationship. Um, And when that happens, when that happens in the mind, the natural, unavoidable consequences is the outward manifestation of sin. But at its root, again, what happened with Eve at the tree? She believed a lie about God. The relationship was broken. And the next thing you see, Adam and Eve are exhibiting selfishness, hiding in the bushes, blaming each other, blaming the serpent, fear, all the outward things that go along with sin uh, happened right after they believed the lie about who God was. And um, again, so it's a breakdown in trust. How do you break a broken, or how do you punish a broken relationship? Okay, sin needs to be healed. You can't hold sin in your hand, put it on a table and hit it over you know, with a hammer, something like that. It needs to be healed, not punished. And Paul will now use the sanctuary model to explain how that works. Okay, so he introduces this concept. My Christian friends, who also have been called by God, think of Jesus, whom God sent to be the high priest of the faith we profess. He was faithful to God, who chose him to do this work, just as Moses was faithful in his work in God's house or temple. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, 
and he spoke of the things that God would say in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son in charge of God's house. Now here's the uh, important point here. We are his house. If we keep up our courage and our confidence in what we hope for. And so Jesus came to do something much better than Moses could do, much better than the priests in the Old Testament can do. He comes as a new high priest and he is working in this house and we are that house. And Paul would then make the, I think, all important point that the ultimate problem is we don't trust God. And so he would go back again to describe those people. Moses worked in this house and the people that followed Moses through the the desert. And here was their ultimate bottom line problem. Hebrews 3 about those who traveled with Moses. And to whom did God swear that they should never enter his rest? Was it not these very men who refused to trust him? Yes, it is all too plain that it was refusal to trust God that prevented these men from entering his rest. And then he would talk about the Sabbath rest uh, that we are to enter into. But the the problem is lack of trust in God. And isn't that true? We just uh, think about their experience through the desert. Every time they got thirsty, Well, we'll trust God. He'll take care of us. No, right away, grumbling and complaining. Okay, there was no trust. And we just go back to read the verse in Numbers about this, where the Lord said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me, even though I have performed so many miracles among them? Okay, so Paul, what he's going to describe is that Jesus came to restore our trust in God. Okay, and that's, that is the first step. It's like the thief on the cross. Didn't do any good thing. Any outward manifestation except he saw Jesus. He looked at what he did. He put his trust in Jesus. And Jesus said, great. You trust me? That's good. So let us then hold firmly to the faith or trust we profess. For we have a great high priest who has gone into the very presence of God. Jesus, the son of God. Our high priest is not one who cannot feel sympathy for our weaknesses. On the contrary, We have a high priest who is tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. And one way of reading this is, you know, God, uh, he's really not all-knowing. He didn't know what it's like to live as a human, how difficult it is to be good. And so the son came and uh, went back up to heaven and said, you know what? It's really very hard down there. Uh, We should be a little more sympathetic uh, for those people. Um, Did the father learn something? the experience of his son he's not all-knowing no of course he's all-knowing but the point is we I mean we actually have sympathy for God because of a change in picture in God it's not that God's attitude changed now he has more sympathy for us because of what his son did it was God who came to reveal that he is sympathetic to our needs he suffered he was tempted just as we are And notice that because of all of this, let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. Because if we really heard the words of Jesus, which if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Then we have confidence approaching God if we really believe that God is just like Jesus in character. If we believe God to be an arbitrary, vengeful deity, uh, we have very little confidence in approaching God. And we won't go into this, but uh, the parallel Paul would make then is with Melchizedek uh, of a priestly order, not of the Levitical uh, priesthood. So we have this hope as an anchor for our lives. It is safe and sure and goes through the curtain 
of the heavenly temple into the inner sanctuary. Remember, when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped, and we'll talk about that. On our behalf, Jesus has gone in there before us and has become a high priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. If it be possible to bring men to spiritual maturity through the Levitical priestly system, for that is the system under which the people were given the law, why does the necessity arise for another priest to make his appearance after the order of Melchizedek? Notice what was the purpose of the sanctuary, of the uh, priestly system. It was to bring men and women into spiritual maturity. Okay, so we have to incorporate, I think, that Jesus' work as a high priest is to cause us to grow up, to mature, to heal, to be cleansed, to be reconciled, all of those things. So the former way of doing things, a system of commandments that never worked out the way it was supposed to, was set aside. The law was brought, the law brought nothing to maturity. Again, that's what God would like. Please grow up. Another way, Jesus, a way that does work to bring us to maturity, that brings us right into the presence of God is put in its place. And uh, as we'll go through this um, sanctuary system, I think that is the whole point. We are to be brought into the very presence of God. Hebrews 7, but Christ, because he lives forever, oops, possesses a priesthood that needs no successor. This means that he can save fully and completely those who approach God through him, for he is always living to intercede on their behalf. And again, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? How does Jesus intercede? And uh, we're just told in the words here, this means that he can save fully and completely those who approach God through him. That is the essence of intercession. Intercession is not to uh, shield us from God. It is not to assuage his wrath. Intercession is to draw us in. It's fully to bring us one way. Okay, so um, in, uh, in another translation of this, the English Standard, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's the purpose of intercession, to draw near to God through God in human form. So the intercessor is God. Substitute is God. Advocate with the Father is God. The one in between is God. And if the one in between is God, who's in between? Okay, we need that person in between. But he became a human to reconcile us back to God. That's the whole purpose of intercession. And uh, if that's true, if God really is just like Jesus, coming back to this verse again, we come boldly to the throne because we're confident in what our God is like. And here we have to go back to uh, the last words of Jesus. Remember, he told his disciples, there's a whole lot more I'd like to tell you, but you can't bear it. This is in John 16. And then just a few verses later on, it seems like he just can't help himself. He tells them the, what is important of all consequence. When he would say, I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. I mean, if we want to point to one single verse in the whole Bible where we can say, this is what the Father's like. Would it not be the testimony of his son who said, let me tell you plainly in clear language about the Father. Here it is. When that time comes, you will make your request to him in my name. But notice, for I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. Why? For the Father himself loves you. Hey, don't we need Jesus to plead with the Father? Uh, the good speed version is, I do not promise to intercede with the Father, for the Father loves you himself. Don't we need Jesus to intercede 
Yes, we do. But the intercession is to bring us into 100% unity with God. And once we're there, the purpose of intercession is it's fulfilled its mission. Okay? And so, again, realizing who God is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we come to see that the Father is just as gracious, kind, humble as the Son. That's the purpose of intercession. And there is really no need for Jesus to intercede once we are at one with God. So, Paul goes on here in Hebrews 8. If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would have been no need for a second one. But God finds fault with his people when he says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will draw up a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They were not faithful to the covenant I made with them. Now this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel in the days to come, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them will have to teach their friends or tell their neighbors, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So the high priestly ministry of Jesus, which I think Paul is trying to paint a picture here, the purpose, again, as we said, it is to work out a transformation in our minds. What does it mean to have the law written on our minds? What does all law point to? Jesus said all law is to love others. Love God with all your heart. Love others. Okay, so the law of other-centered love is ultimately what God wants to write on our hearts and minds. That's what he's doing in his high priestly intercessory ministry. And so intimately tied with that is a true knowledge of God. Everyone will know me. They will know me. Eternal life is to know God. Okay, so our picture of God here is, is so critically important. And then Paul, uh, here he's just a little uh, teaser verse here. I really wish he would go on. But he describes this, the sanctuary system. Now, the first agreement had certain rules for the service of God, and it had a sanctuary, a holy place in this world for the eternal God. A tent was erected. In the outer compartment were placed the lamp standard, the table, and the sacred loaves. Inside, beyond the curtain, was the inner tent called the Holy of Holies, in which were the golden censer and the gold inlaid ark of the agreement containing the golden jar of manna. Aaron's budding staff and the stone tablets inscribed with the words of the actual agreement. Now, this is important. He just said, I want the law written on the heart. Now he's talking about the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. Above these things were fixed representations of the cherubim of glory, casting their shadow over the arks, covering the lid known as the mercy seat. And then he says, all this is full of meaning, but we cannot enter into a detailed explanation. Oh, it's full of meaning, Paul. Why not just go into it here and explain it to us? Um, well, it is full of meaning, but it's all through the whole Bible. So that's what we're going to try to do now very briefly. What is the meaning of this whole system here? And if it's all done away with at the cross, why are we talking about it in the Hebrews? Why is there so much of the sanctuary system in the book of Revelation? Why is this relevant to 21st century Christians about uh, the holy place and the most holy place and all of that? Well, Jesus is the lid. Uh, three inches thick, solid. And uh, here is, I think, the key point. And then we're going to go back and, and try to fill in from the Old Testament and through the rest of the Bible about the sanctuary. Here's what Jesus is doing as a high priest in this sanctuary. Okay, seeing that the first tabernacle was a parable or a visible symbol or type or picture 
of the present age. In it, gifts and sacrifices are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. What's really supposed to happen in that sanctuary? To perfect the conscience, to cleanse, to renew the inner man. Isn't this something going on in the mind? And then later on, how much more is accomplished by the blood of Christ? Through the eternal spirit, he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. His blood will purify our consciences from useless rituals so that we can serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the one who arranges a new covenant. So the purpose here and the reason for even, I think, getting into this whole sanctuary sacrificial system is we are to understand here what is this cleansing, reconciliation um, all about. And so um, my understanding as a child anyway, thinking about Jesus as a high priest, was um, I kind of felt sorry for him. I imagined him in this building all the time and walking around with a censer. And I remember thinking, boy, I wonder if he gets tired. I wonder if he ever gets out of the building up there. Well, what is the temple? What is the sanctuary? Uh, what's the meaning here? You would have to go back to uh, Leviticus a long time ago, uh, which you can download and listen to. And, and I, we went through all of the symbols involved here in the sanctuary. Uh, but let me just go through uh, very briefly and describe what I think the whole point of this is. Um, first of all, you come in here and there's a bronze altar. Not gold, bronze. And we have the animal sacrificed and the uh, uh, it's burned up there on the altar. And I think uh, each three of these represents uh, the mind. We have the bronze altar, which is the unconverted heart and mind. We have the golden altar here in the most holy place. And then finally, we have the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens here when we are converted? We experience repentance. Um, and just the word repentance means a change of mind, to change your mind really about who God is. Well, you're baptized, right? And so the priest here, um, and I think really this is, you know, when we come to see, my goodness, that one dying on the cross is God. And we're moved by that. And we come to trust a one who is just like that individual who died on the cross. And uh, we're converted. And when we're converted, we have baptism here, and we enter into the holy place which describes the experience of church. And I don't mean the official building structure that you go into, but notice what are the three things in the holy place here. We have the candlestick, which in Revelation, Jesus is walking in the holy place. He's walking among the candlesticks, and we're told the candlestick is the church, okay, which is to be a light to the world. There's the table of showbread uh, here, which I believe represents internalizing, uh, reading the Bible, this was made by the priests. It was eaten by the priests. And then we have the golden altar with the incense going into the most holy place. And Paul would describe this incense as prayer. And are we not to be in a continual prayerful relationship with God? Okay, so this is this experience here in the golden altar is the converted heart and mind. Okay, Jesus died. And remember this curtain was ripped right into the most holy place. And in the most holy place here, we have the Ark of the Covenant. And inside, Ten Commandments. What did Paul just say? I want to write the law of love on your hearts and minds. And so I think the Ark of the Covenant here represents the converted, fully settled into the truth, heart and mind of a believer. And notice, what if that's true, we have the lid, which is Jesus, three inches thick, solid gold, and what's above the lid? The Shekinah glory. 
Jesus came to reconcile, to at one us to God. So if we here are at one with God, we have, the, again, the law of love written on our hearts, and Jesus came to unite us, to reconcile, to bring us to at one with God. So the point of the system here is not we want to be shielded from that Shekinah glory. Okay, the point of the system is no, that Jesus came as our high priest and he is leading us in. We follow him in by faith into the most holy place. We become at one with God. And so there's just a little bit of evidence for this for those of you um, who are Seventh-day Adventists. I kind of like the words here that um, point to what was the purpose of the sanctuary system. So through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. What was the purpose? Okay, in all, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul, for the mind. It was the same purpose long afterwards, set forth by the Apostle Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Notice, we are the temple. Thus, in labor and in giving, they are taught to cooperate with God and with one another, and they were to cooperate also in the preparation of the spiritual building, God's temple in the soul. Okay, so I think, um, is there a dirty building in heaven that needs to be swept out and cleaned out? Isn't the problem really in our hearts and minds? If we have a distrustful, rebellious attitude towards God, false picture of God, isn't that the temple that needs to be cleansed? And it's just as uh, some evidence of this, if you go all the way back to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, cleansing the temple. Notice who was cleansed. In this way, he will perform the ritual to purify the most holy place from the uncleanness of the people of Israel and from all their sins. Okay, and if we just go through here and we just read on in Leviticus 16, we find out who's cleansed. On that day, the ritual is to be performed to purify them, the people, from all their sins so that they will be ritually clean. And perform the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the community. These regulations are to be observed for all time to come. This ritual must be performed once a year to purify the people. Okay, so again, it is about what happens inside us. And so we get that basic understanding all the way back. And then this is just hammered in the New Testament that we are the temple. Come to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple, spiritual temple. And we are pillars in the temple. Revelation goes on to say we are priests in the temple. And in Ephesians, you too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone again being Christ Jesus He's the one who makes the whole building grow together and make it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you two are being built together with all others into a place where God lives through his spirit. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom is within you or among you. Okay, so the cleansing is an individual thing, but it is also to collectively bring together a group of people so settled into the truth about who God is. Reconcile back to God. In 1 Corinthians 3, surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. Okay, for God's temple is holy and you yourselves are his temple. 
And again, my understanding for years had been that this was just a dietary thing. We're God's temple. Be careful how much cheese you eat, you know. But um, is that really the meaning? Where does the Holy Spirit reside? Is it not in the mind? Where are we convicted? Where do we change our mind about? I mean, it's all important what's going on in the mind. I know I shared this illustration a long time ago, but it really hit home with me. This patient I had who uh, had a spinal cord injury, can't move his arms or legs. And because of this, he also can't swallow. And I can't give him any advice about diet or exercise. Um, should I tell him, you know what, you're not a temple? Uh, no, of course he's a temple. Okay, He's a temple up here. When he responds to God, trusts God, the temple is cleansed and all is well. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who has been given you by God? So not to say, again, that... Uh, that our whole body we shouldn't treat carefully and uh, eat right and exercise. Okay, But again, God doesn't come back and say, now let's see, who are the vegetarians and the people who are running three miles a day? Those are the people that get into heaven. Okay, No, it is people who have changed their hearts and mind about who God is. Again, it's so redundant. In 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And coming back to Hebrews, where Paul would say, we are his house. So it's redundant again and again. And I think this ties into everything so important. The death of Jesus, the blood. Uh, it's all related. And the, the sanctuary model is a very helpful one for understanding what's really going on. Go back to Daniel. Now, these familiar words I know for some of you. Describing what I believe is the dark ages, the time after the Christian church fell. And we get this description. Out of one of these four horns grew a little horn, whose power extended toward the south and the east and toward the promised land. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Now, how could anything attack the army of heaven? All right, now this is a symbolic description here. The stars themselves, and it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. I mean, is Satan so strong that he could march up to heaven and throw angels down? Uh, what's being described here? It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. That's Jesus. Stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and, notice, ruined the temple. And if we just keep reading on, it gets clear what is being described here. People sinned there instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices. And notice, true religion was thrown to the ground. Okay, When truth is thrown to the ground, when people believe a lie about God, God is defeated, in a sense. The angels who are working with God to... Uh, spread the truth throughout the world. They are defeated. They're cast down. And th there was a period of time, I think you'd have to say undeniably, during the Dark Ages, when uh, a horrible picture of God was presented. True religion was thrown to the ground. The temple was defiled. Okay, and we read on for a, some promise, though. Then I heard one angel ask another, how long will these things that were seen in the vision continue? How long will an awful sin replace the daily sacrifices? How long will the army of heaven and the temple be trampled on? And I heard the other angel answer, it will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings, during which temple sacrifices will not be offered, but notice, a promise, then the temple will be restored, or then the temple will be cleansed. Okay, and I think what is being described here is there will be a time when the truth about God, the good news, it will go throughout the world, and there will be a great reconciliation and trust in God once again. It, it's tied in in so many places. Here in Thessalonians, 
We can read this literally or perhaps understand this in a symbolic way. Talking about Satan. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who is destined to hell. He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. And haven't we seen Satan's desire to be worshipped as God? We read in Isaiah 14. Um, and then when Jesus went out to the wilderness and Satan said, get down on your knees and worship me. He wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to reside in our mind uh, as God. And he's successful insofar as we believe a lie about who God is. And notice, he will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. And I would rather see this in, not in terms of uh, Satan necessarily coming in human form and going to some temple, uh, but... He wants to reside up here, okay, in our mind. And uh, God wants, in his high priestly role, to cleanse the temple, to be at one with you and I. So we are priests, as I mentioned in Revelation. We're to follow our high priest, Jesus. And notice what is our function as priests in this temple. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. Just Jesus came to teach the true knowledge of God. That's our job as well. We follow Jesus, our high priest. People should go to them to learn my will because they are messengers of the Lord Almighty. But notice, but now you priests have turned away from the right path. Your teaching has led many to do wrong. You've broken the covenant I made with you. Now what's the result when people claiming to speak for God, claiming to be priests in his temple, preach a false message? And we just read on here in Malachi, they have defiled the temple. Okay, so it's, uh, it's, I see such a redundant uh, theme here in the Bible that we are the temple. How we respond to truth and evidence determines whether the temple is cleansed or defiled. So there's great meaning, I think, to this whole system. Now, just in concluding, um, a, a difficult verse here, but I think now perhaps uh, we can uh, understand why Paul mentions this. And I mentioned, I use an older translation here because perhaps the words are more familiar which according to the law, I may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, what does this mean? Uh, of course, we talked about how the fact that we shouldn't just associate the blood with the death, but that God became a flesh and blood human being. It was the life that was real. The death was the culmination of the life. But what does it mean here? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And again, I think a, a medical model is so often insightful, helpful for understanding this. Uh, you will see patients, for example, that have cancer. As I saw a number of years ago, a lady with breast cancer. And she had radiation, surgery, chemotherapy. And she came back to see me for another problem, but she was in remission. What does that mean? Uh, she's healed. She's cleansed. She was in a cancerous state. Again, if we're applying this to a medical uh, parallel here, a sinful, rebellious state. Jesus came to bring us out of that, into remission, to heal, to reconcile. And uh, Jesus' words here, that here's what it's all about. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And then he would go on to say, my flesh is real food, my blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me, and I live in them. And it seems to me that we too often put the blood in the wrong place, on the outside, to shield us. No, the blood is to become a part of us. It's to be internalized. The truth about God, who God is, is 
to be fully assimilated, just like liquid, food, to become a part of us. Okay, so if the blood is seen in that sense, it's healing, it's restorative. And uh, maybe just a, a couple more points here. I think it's just so critical how we understand the death of Jesus. Uh, the death of Jesus should be the single pinnacle event where we see that God can be trusted, that God is good, that God is just like this, dying, being tortured to death, and forgiving them. Okay, And that picture of God in human form being tortured to death on the cross, I mean, can you not trust a God like that? But the view of Jesus dying on the cross, being punished by the Father, well, it can make the cross that something that can actually make us afraid of God. We might not be afraid of Jesus, but what do we think about the Father? So our understanding of what really happened at the cross is so important. Why was Jesus suffering? How was he punished? And here just to tie in with this, Paul would talk about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Was Jesus not the fulfillment of the sacrificial system? And he describes it this way. The Jewish law is not a full and faithful model of the real things. It is only a faint outline of the good things to come. The same sacrifices are offered forever, year after year. How can the law then, by means of these sacrifices, make perfect the people who come to God? But notice, as it is, however, the sacrifices, what was the purpose of that brutal sacrificial system? Thousands of animals slaughtered. What was the purpose? The sacrifices serve year after year to remind people of their sins. For the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And just imagine you're Adam and Eve. And all of this has happened. And you see this sin problem. You don't understand. Is it bad because God's going to punish? Or is it bad because sin itself will do something to me? And they have a sacrificial system. And you have to kill a lamb. No swords. I mean, how did they kill it? It must have been revolting. They beat it to death with a rock. I mean, don't you think Adam turned to God and perhaps said, you know what, this just grosses me out. And perhaps God said, good, getting the point. Sin is horrible. It should remind you of the awful consequences of sin. And we see that at the cross. What happened at the cross? Well, this is a a way that the cross is often viewed. Here's a prophetic description in Isaiah. He was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he is a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us. But notice, but we thought... His suffering was punishment from God. Don't we think that? Was he punished by God? But notice, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. What did Jesus cry out as he died on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, What does sin do? It causes a disconnection between us and God. And on the cross, we see the consequence, the natural consequence of a rebellious, distrustful relationship with God and Jesus died. Okay, tortured to death, again, by a group of uh, commandment-keeping people. But we should see on the cross the malignant nature of sin and the goodness of our God. Okay, so one view of the cross makes us afraid of the Father. Another comes us to see that God is just like that one dying on the cross. Okay, last point here. Um, we got, haven't even gotten up to the faith chapter yet. And uh, I think it, it, it's, again, all about restoring our faith, our trust in God. And um, so maybe I can just say that here in Hebrews 10, Paul is making the point that, hey, Jesus came to restore 
our trust in God. And then leading up to Hebrews 11, the great chapter on men and women of great faith, Message Bible, great translation. That anyone who is right with me thrives on loyal trust. If he cuts and runs, I won't be very happy. But we're not quitters who lose out. Oh, no. We'll stay with it and survive trusting all the way. And then Paul describes, hey, we are restored back to trust in God, but there have been people in the Old Testament that trusted God as well. And uh, so he goes on here to describe people who have trusted in God. And it's an interesting list. It's fascinating, really, because you go through and you think, okay, Abel, Enoch, they were pretty good. Noah, um, a little problem with alcohol for a while, but okay, he was pretty good. And Abraham um, had several wives, but uh, he was a great hero of faith. Isaac, Jacob, we've talked about what these men did. Joseph, Moses, and then we read to the prostitute, the prostitute, Rahab woman of great faith. And then he ends this way. Should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon. I remember what Gideon did at the end of his life. Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Do you remember Jephthah? The man who said, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house after I'm victorious in battle. And it was his daughter. Um, Amazing. David, Now, I don't even need to mention the stories of David here, Samuel, and so on. These are heroes of faith. And just to pick on one here, Samson. What do you think about Samson's dying wish? Samson prayed, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. Please, God, give me my strength just this one more time so that I can serve my enemies. No, so that with this one blow, I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my two eyes. He died wanting to get even uh, with his enemies. And I think um, this should be a great hope to us, though, because what I think what Paul is doing is he is recognizing, hey, these people, maybe they only had a shred, but they trusted in me. You have much more reasons to trust in me than these people here in Hebrews 11 because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for uh, all of the evidence that uh, you've provided to us. Help us to understand it much better than we do now. Help us to apply the symbols to our lives, help it to be relevant, meaningful, and as we enter into that at one with you, may we have good things to say, but especially to reveal to others by the way we treat them. Amen.